from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for the This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 8th. Today, working moms in quarantine and what learning Bach can teach us about grief. No. I just... We're in this mode of it's going to work out because it has to, right? When we wake up every morning, we just know the entire day is going to be insane. And you just sort of mentally prepare yourself for that as quickly as you can, which isn't fast at all when you have a three-year-old who walks into your room and is like poking you in the eye. It's like, wake up, wake up, wake up. We also have an eight-month-old who still isn't sleeping through the night. So we're also not getting a ton of sleep. My name is Helena Andrews-Dyer, and I'm a pop culture reporter for The Washington Post. I'm also a mother of two, Sally Rose, who just turned three, and Robin Sage, who is almost eight months. I still feel like Helena when I wake up in the morning, but I have this other identity that just like, it doesn't subsume me. It doesn't take over who I am, but there's just so many literally just things to do. Like the baby's diaper has to be changed. You know, you cannot leave her in a poop filled diaper all day. She has to be changed. She has to eat. You know, she has to be played with. You know, my oldest Sally has to feel loved. You know, she has to all these things that you just sort of have to plug in. Um, And it's just necessary. So you do them and then you look up and realize once all those things are done, then it's like literally like eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night. And you're like, oh, wait. And then there's also me. So, so many parents, I know, you know, you go so long without eating in a day and I'm sure you're hungry and knew you were hungry, but then the baby was hungry and you had to feed her or your oldest was hungry or your husband was asking you for something. And you're just sort of the traffic cop, right? And not just a traffic cop, you're also like the meter maid and you are also the cop walking the beat. Like you just have all the jobs um, and it needs to be done. You know what I mean? So you just do them. And then in between all of that, we're actually trying to get work done. So my husband works in IT. So he is especially busy now because, you know, all of his clients like all of us are now working from home and they need to be set up and they need to be supported. So he goes into the office and pretty much works a full day and will like check in on me every couple of hours, but can't really help with childcare. I'm doing most of that on my own. We do thankfully have our three-year-old's old babysitter who comes for a couple of hours in the afternoon. She's kind of like in our quarantine bubble. We know her mom. Um, So we're comfortable with her coming as long as she feels good. And she, you know, hasn't gone in many other places besides literally from our house to her mom's house. And she comes in the afternoon just to sort of relieve me. And those couple of hours are the only time I can get 
housework done that I can't do with the kids here, plus actual work, like interviews and that kind of thing. Plus just take, like sometimes when, her name is Savannah, sometimes when Savannah comes, it's like the first time I've like been able to quickly take a shower or wash my hair or change clothes from my pajamas, right? Uh, At three in the afternoon. This Mother's Day is historic, right? We're celebrating women during a pandemic. And we wanted to talk to moms, specifically working moms who are struggling right now about how they're thriving and surviving motherhood during this time. months ago, I saw a camera to my home where I'm able to talk with my kids through the camera and pretty much see everything that they're doing. Nina Mako works outside of the home. She's a grocery store shopper for Amazon and Instacart, and she has four kids. The oldest one is 12. She'll be 13 in September. My son is 11. And I have a 10-year-old daughter and a 4-year-old daughter. Since they've been home, I have to, like, prepare breakfast, lunch, and dinner before I leave to go to work. Because majority of the time, I'm there all day. So when I get home, it's, it's already nighttime. Sometimes I work from 6 a.m. until 8.15 p.m. Or sometimes I work from 6 a.m. till 9.15 p.m. My kids will not go to bed until I'm here. We sit down. Sometimes we do TV time. If it's the weekend, I let them stay up for a little while. But if it's during the weekday, we'll, you know, discuss what they worked on the day. And, um, you know, what assignments they had from school. Because they still have to log on to Chromebooks every day. And um, make sure that everything is done and turned in on time. And then I get them ready for bed. They already had their bath before I get home. So I get them ready for bed and so that they can be up the next day and on computers. Being a mom is a job. So it's a lot of work. I think that it comes with like a lot of time and being attentive with them, knowing what's going on with them, what they're feeling. My 10-year-old is the one that she asks a lot of questions all the time. And she's always like, Mom, why do you have to work so much? I don't think she really understands right now, especially with this pandemic going on, because I was home more with them before the pandemic started. I explained to her that Number one, we have to we have to keep like food and toiletries and stuff in the house while a lot of stores are shut down. And um, there are a lot of older people, like elderly people that need me to shop their groceries. A lot of people can't get out of the house right now. A lot of moms, like first time moms who've had babies, they need food, they need pampers. So 
it's a lot with me having to go to work. It's like we're in this moment where we're dancing. All of a sudden, the music stopped. Uh, we were left there on the spot. What do we do? We have to define our space, find our new rhythm, create our own music, per se, and, and then keep on going. Winley Jang is a mother of two and a business manager for a large Silicon Valley firm. Yeah, my husband, me, and I have two boys. Oliver is an 11th grader, and Aiden is an 8th grader. So the four of us. She's doing the best she can. With a demanding job, she has a completely new understanding of what work and home life balance is. How do I say it? Um, I've given up to be a superwoman a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do everything. <laughs> I made sure that I, in my household, everyone is equally busy. I help my kids to, to define their own structure. If I don't see that in place, I help them to find something meaningful they can you know, get, get going. Uh, but I, I don't really get into what they do, how they do it. it life is a trade-off. You know, as a mom, I want to put responsibilities on their shoulder, you know, gradually add on to it. When they were little, they have to do dishes, they have to put, take trash out. That's, that, that's their job at home. And now they're older, they cook. Oliver started to help dad to fix the gutter and you know, the house fix up and he has to get involved. So at home, they do all kinds of things. They have their job, a non, non-paid jobs. I don't pay them. <laughs> Outside, they're in this organization, they teach. Uh, and when they teach, it's a lot of time and effort. You know, they're all busy, but... You know, I want them to suffer in order to teach them a lesson, something called responsibility. This is a really precious time. And my husband was talking about the same thing. He said, well, this is the precious, precious time. I need to do something with my son because we are all busy and you're apart and do our own things. All of a sudden we're here. What do we do? So for them, they created a schedule like four or five in the afternoon. Uh, the three of them, the boys, they go out to run. They do that every day now. We are all worrying about two things. One is whether anybody gets sick. And second of all, if my husband and I are still having our jobs, right? Those are the two things on our mind all the time. But at the same time, I feel much more grateful than everything around me. You know, when we sat together having lunch, we look at outside of the window, the grass was so green. You know, we have such a peaceful yard. I feel grateful for that we're not sick. We still have our jobs. We're still together. For me, it's just, I feel like the days, the days run very long and they're also 
short at the same time, if that makes any sense. Like I often find myself throughout the day just thinking like, you know, oh, if we could just get to the end of the day, but then the end of the day comes and it's, I don't feel like things have been accomplished and life is definitely different because the places that we would go, uh, we can't go. Uh, and what I mean by that is parks, um, stores. I can't take Michael into the stores because of his immune system, um, because of the rare disease that he has. So we've really been trying to stay home and stay inside as much as possible. And so it's been challenging in that life as we knew it has abruptly changed. Elizabeth Snary is a single mom in Atlanta. Her only son, Michael, was born with a rare genetic disease called Hunter syndrome. So his body doesn't make the enzyme that you and I have that breaks down the garbage in the body. So instead of it being broken down, it builds up. His brain, heart, every organ, every bone is impacted by this disorder. And the concern for us is that because there's buildup in Michael's airway, if Michael were to develop just a common cold, that's very dangerous for him. He can, his oxygen levels can drop. He can have difficulty breathing. We have developed somewhat of a routine, but um, being, it's a, gen, it's a gentle routine, allowing for changes needed. But I spend some time working and then alternate back to whatever Michael's needs are at the time. And then back to work. And so I think that my work days run longer because I may be pulled away for Michael during the day, but then once he goes to bed, I might be able to go back to my computer and open things up. But my job, I work for the ARC Georgia. And so right now, a lot of our work is around COVID and how it's impacting the disability community. So I feel like my entire life right now is about COVID. Michael's disease is a progressive terminal disease. So um, individuals who experience Hunter syndrome don't really live past their teens, and Michael wasn't expected to live um, past 10, but he did. And um, so time is just something that I'm always thinking about. And so while life is very crazy and hectic, and you can lose these moments very quickly because time feels like it's moving so quickly. So in these moments where we're able to kind of slow down, I'm I just, I can't help but be a little bit grateful that I do have this time with my son. Normally, he would be at school and doing things, and I know that he misses that, but I also can't help but be grateful that I'm I'm here, that he's here, and that we're just experiencing these moments of closeness together. I hope that I don't forget what this was like, and I hope that I don't forget how special and sweet it's been to kind of get to know my child in a new way because we're spending so much time together. Like I'm reminded of how funny he is and how clever and how he likes to joke around and how he likes to just be close. Even if you're not interacting with him, he just likes to be with people. And I'm reminded of, of just qualities of, about my son. And so I hope that I don't take these moments for granted. And I hope that when things return to normal, whenever that is, that I'm able to still pause, that I'm still able to still reflect, that I'm able to still show myself the grace and kindness that I've shown, you know, during this time. Someone said something the other day about like, this isn't working from home. 
This is right. sheltering during a global pandemic and trying to get work done. I feel like I need to remind myself of that as much as anybody else because I work from home and this doesn't feel like that. Maggie Smith is a poet from Ohio. So naturally, working from home is nothing new to her. But she's also a mother of two. Rhett is seven and Violet is 11. First grader and a fifth grader. It's, it's hectic. And then I still have, you know, I still have writing that I'm doing and I still have editorial work that I'm doing. So I still have deadlines. And I'm trying to get that done as best I can around their device needs because we don't have three laptops in the house. A couple of days ago, I had my daughter downstairs at the coffee table desk with her fifth grade class on Zoom. And up in his bedroom, I had my son on this laptop Zooming with a small group of first graders because they're doing small groups. And as things would like mute or people would freeze, they would yell my name. And I was just running up and down the stairs as like the company IT guy sort of doing troubleshooting and like, you know, well, now you just have to exit out of Zoom and then enter back in. And that's what unfreezes the other people. And my daughter wants to do, you know, Netflix party with friends and Google right. Duo chat. And that's all fine. But uh, like, I need my device also. And I don't really want her on my phone constantly. FaceTime and Zoom and phone calls and texting and these things are helping. And even like, shouting across the street or, mm -hmm. you know, roller skating across an alley or, you know, uh, you know, sitting in a yard on the other side of someone. And these are all workarounds, but it just feels like we're, you know, putting a Band-Aid on like a massive wound. <laughs> it's made me more forgiving of myself and of the time I need because I think we feel a lot of guilt as working mothers, especially, that if we're not attending to their needs at every second of every day, that they're going to feel ignored or that we care about our work more than them or that they're not the top priority. And, and I think um, them sort of watching me navigate this with them, I hope and trust that they know they're the top priority. Mm -hmm. But I also, I can see that they get it. Like, they're like, no, go do your thing. We're fine. Like, and, and I feel like we're all kind of giving ourselves space to not be perfect and to just do the best we can. It's like, we'll shoot hoops and my son will go, just take your shot. It's okay if it doesn't go in. And I'm like, that's what it is, right? Like, just take your shot. It's it's funny because it's it's been such a roller coaster at the beginning of this when we didn't know if it would last a week or two, maybe, you know, it was so hopeful because I thought, okay, like this could be fun. I get to spend even more time with my baby, even more time with my toddler. And then as it became clear that this would be lasting even longer, that I had more work to do, that the kids needed even more of me, 
then the roller coaster starts dipping downwards, you know, and you think, wait, am I, I mean, am I even good at this? Like, am I a good mom? These kids are driving me insane. Like, how can I not be great at this? These are my children. Of course, I should be with them all the time, but they're literally going to send me to the madhouse. Like, maybe I just really suck at this. And then I, once I realized that I obviously wasn't the only one feeling that way, knowing that parenthood is hard. It's hard for everyone. And this just underscored that. And once I realized that I didn't have to be super mom from the time that their eyes opened until the time that their eyes closed, that I could literally just parachute in and give them each, you know, in an hour, 10, 15 minutes of great mom time and you see the look on their faces and I realize, you know, they they love me, I love them, and I'm taking care of them in the best way that I know how and that is what this is. That is what parenting is. Mommy made a mess. It's okay to make a mistake. Wait, what do you say? It's okay to make a mistake. It is okay to make a mistake. Smart girl. Elena Andrews-Dyer is a features reporter for The Post. She reported this story with Ellen McCarthy, Caitlin Gibson, and Amy Joyce. And now, one more thing from arts critic Phil Kennicott about his mother, Carol Kennicott. She had been a violinist. She wanted to be a violinist, maybe even professionally, but it didn't work out. She had children early and she had four kids. And I think she was always disappointed by that. She was disappointed by by other dreams that she had that she felt had been sacrificed to have a family. When she was young and just out of high school, she received a full tuition scholarship to go to college in California. At the time, she was living in Utah. And her father refused her bus fare to go to California to take up that scholarship because he didn't think it was appropriate for a young woman to be out on her own. This would have been in the, in the early 1950s. And so my mother was an unhappy woman, a, a disappointed woman. And she, I think she spread that unhappiness around her. I don't know intentionally or not, but she lived in an unhappy world and she brought people into it with her. My mother introduced me to music and she started all of her children on piano or violin lessons from a very early age. So it was always part of our household and it was very much part of my growing up. But because she had a fraught relationship to music, because it had so much disappointment for her, that I think in some ways became bound up with how I responded to music. It became something I was always testing myself against, always feeling in a sense a bit of inadequacy as a player, wishing I could play better. And yet, It was also a kind of private place because relatively early on, I became good enough at the piano that I kind of, in a way, surpassed my mother's skills in the violin. And when that happened, 
the piano became much more of a private space for me. She wasn't as involved in listening to me practice and monitoring my lessons and that kind of thing. And it was something into which I could escape. My mother died in 2012, and she was 74 at the time, and she died from ovarian cancer that she had fought for several years. And when she died, she had a lot of these issues of disappointment and frustration still unresolved. And so in many ways, her her death was a painful death, even though if you had kind of come in from the outside and seen her life, you would have thought... This is not so bad. This is a woman who's had four grown children who've all gone on to be relatively successful. They've all launched in life. She was prosperous. She had her family around her, and she had good health care. But it was very painful in the last days of my mother's life to see her struggling with this reckoning with her own unhappiness. When my mother was dying, I kept listening to this violin piece by Bach called the Chacon in D minor. I listened to it over and over again. I would just hit repeat and listen to it for an hour, two hours, three hours at a time. But it was a violin piece, and I don't play the violin. So later, when I was thinking about some way of grappling with Bach's music and challenging myself to do something that would really give me uh, a new perspective on life, I thought of the Goldberg Variations, which is this magnificent set of 30 variations on a bass line with an aria by Johann Sebastian Bach. I felt compelled to try and learn the Goldberg Variations because, in a way, I wanted to sort of see if I could do it and sort of press upon life and see, see what, was, what really mattered to me. I didn't want to reach the same state that my mother had reached in her final days and feel as if I had left things I wanted to do undone, challenges that I wanted to undertake, undertaken. And unlike um, variations in, uh, from a later period, Mozart or Beethoven, it's a set of variations written on a repeating bass line. And that's just the beginning of it. It goes on for 32 bars. And in every variation, he takes that line and creates a completely different character piece for it. And this piece, which was published in the 1740s, is in many ways a kind of catalog of everything the harpsichord could do at that point. It's a piece that is still challenging to people today because it forces you to be incredibly precise and accurate and clean and even. It's, I think this probably has more data points in it than even some of the great romantic pieces by Chopin and Liszt and Rachmaninoff that are just full of notes everywhere. This one may seem simpler and cleaner, but the amount of stuff you have to keep in your head is just extraordinarily wide. The other thing that's particularly wonderful about it is that it really seems to add up to a journey. Bach wrote an aria, 
which has this bass line underneath it, and this gorgeous melody on top that you're only going to hear one more time. You're going to hear it in the beginning of the variations, and you're going to hear it at the very end. He repeats the aria at the end, and by the time you get there, which can be anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half later, depending on how many repeats you take and and your tempos and all of that, but by the time you get there, when you hear it for the second and final time, it's as if it's utterly transformed. You recognize it, you know you're hearing it, you've been hearing that bass line in various permutations throughout the variations, but when it happens a second time, it's as if you're returning to a world in which everything is the same, but something fundamental has changed. And in that sense, I think it's rather like grief. Not the first stage of grief where you feel like everything is unsettled and torn away from you. But that part of grief when you're getting back into life and you suddenly are aware, not so much of the immediate first pangs of pain, but rather all the ways in which the world has been transformed by subtracting something from it. Phil Kennicott is an arts and architecture critic for The Post. He wrote a book about this experience of losing his mother. It's called Counterpoint, a memoir of Bach and mourning. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye out for a bonus episode coming out on Saturday afternoon. It's with fashion critic Robin Gavon about the new silence we're hearing in cities around the world. Until then, our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Spernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 